as we sit here recording episode 143, my first question to you is, would you rather be the greatest of all time at bowling or a 15-year NFL punter? Ooh, that's a good question. I actually think of myself as a pretty good bowler. I'm not going to lie. I, I haven't played as much as I like to, but I like to think of myself as a pretty good bowler. I can get pretty close to 200 at times. Uh... I think life of a punter, I mean, life of a punter is more lonely, but I'm also okay uh, just being alone with my thoughts and alone with my skill set. It's a really repetitive skill set to have. Yeah, I think I'm going to go punter. Even being an NFL punter for 15 years means you're one of the best punters in the world. That's still a pretty cool job to have. That versus bowling is tough, though. Yeah, I couldn't name a handful of professional bowlers. I don't think I could name one professional bowler. I could at least name a couple punters. If you're punting for 15 years, I probably will know your name. And any NFL paycheck is still a pretty damn good paycheck. So I'd rather put on my resume, I played in the NFL, than I was a pretty damn good bowler. But anyway, so just let us know, would you rather be the Michael Jordan of bowling or would you rather just be Johnny Hecker? Without further ado, it's time for the random Sports Fact of the Week. Wow, did you know that? Now live on the Slumbuster Podcast, Random Sports Fact of the Week. Last week in a closeout game six, we saw NBA history. Chris Paul, who has been maligned for his playoff resume, improved to four and O in closeout opportunities as a Phoenix Sun. Not only that, but CP3 became the first player to ever shoot 14 shots without missing a basket in a playoff game. The only one to outdo him, Wilt Chamberlain in the regular season. Wilt has an 18 for 18 mark a 16 for 16 mark and a 15 for 15 mark. Currently the Suns are up 2-0 in the Western Conference semis and it's all due to the steady shooting hand of Chris Paul. The Slumpbuster Podcast. The Slumpbuster Podcast. The first quarter starts now. The NFL draft is in our rear view mirror as the NFL continues to dominate the offseason. Now we look forward to the eventual schedule reveal. But as we move past it, it's time to look at some of the biggest headlines, some of the biggest stories. I'm going to start things off. My biggest story is what the Titans are doing. I, I think that they had a very interesting draft weekend. Um, adding Malik Willis is something that changes their long-term trajectory. And then, of course, the trade of A.J. Brown is something that both affects their short-term and long-term aspects because you think about A.J. and what he brings to the team, and he's a type of player that helps you win now. But it seems that somewhere along the line, it became untenable for them to continue that relationship as Mike Vrabel similar to what John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan are doing with Debo really wanted to keep AJ Brown but for some reason that they just couldn't get to the middle they couldn't get back to the negotiating table and it just didn't happen and of course when we've talked about the quarterback situation it's only become amplified because Ryan Tannehill has already had some comments on how his relationship will be with Malik Willis as they enter a quarterback competition doesn't seem like much of a competition particularly this year I, I think Ryan Tannehill firmly has the starting job locked up as Blake Willis at the end of the day is going to be a project quarterback is going to be someone that not a lot of people saw as NFL ready. Uh, certainly coming from a non-traditional power coming from Liberty, people just really like the skill set. But I, I think the Titans were the biggest thing that caught my eye. What did you think about what they did? 
So first of all, I like that you brought up the quarterback part of it first, because I was saying that pick 26 would be like the floor for guys like Willis and Pickett, because I was under the impression that both of them would go in the first round and only one of them did. Then there was a long run of not picking quarterbacks. I felt like the Titans were in a prime position to get a backup quarterback because Ryan Tannehill, they can get out of his contract uh, after this season. And as a fun fact, did you know that Ryan Tannehill has the largest cap hit of any quarterback going into the 2022 season at $38 million against the salary cap. That is a pretty expensive three interceptions in the playoffs. Is it even three interceptions? Because I remember the joke with Ryan Tannehill is that one against the Patriots, one against Baltimore, and then he lost against Baltimore in 2020. And in those three playoff games, he had less than 100 passing yards in every single one of those games, I believe is the correct statistic. And see, when we compare this, because I think a very good comp, Jimmy Garoppolo in that relationship with Trey Lance versus what we're seeing with Ryan Tannehill and Malik Willis, obviously, Jimmy, although reluctantly, still embraced the opportunity to mentor Trey where he could. And I don't blame Ryan Tannehill for being a little bit, hey, this guy's trying to take my job. I'm not going to let this guy take my job. Sneaky to find out that he is 34 years old. I think a lot of people, when they think of Ryan Tannehill in their mind, they don't think he's that old. I think he's older than Matthew Stafford, who it feels like has been in the league a lot longer than Ryan Tannehill. I may be wrong on that one. What do you know? You know all these people's ages. I don't know how old Matthew Stafford is, but Ryan Tannehill was also, I believe he was a fifth-year senior in college also so converted wide receiver yeah that it changed the math quite a bit yeah he was a fifth year senior in college you're i was right so he was a super senior in college and people forget he was in the same draft class as one andrew luck and robert griffin the third so this is clearly an older draft class if i would have told you on that draft class that the converted wide receiver would have the more lucrative nfl career above those previous two prospects i don't think anyone would have believed me on that day no 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 ryan Tannehill had a longer career but not a more lucrative career than andrew i would say say. that biggest cap hit in the nfl says it's pretty lucrative okay lucrative financially i guess you are correct i'm just andrew luck no no no. i am correct i am correct no i guess The contract says it. The money is in the details. Andrew Luck had more passing yards in his first five years than Dan Marino. Anyways, so Malik Willis is not the same caliber of prospect. I think everyone is saying he's not the same caliber of prospect as a Trey Lance per se. I think the idea is correct, though, is that this is someone who, when the Tennessee Titans inevitably fall off a cliff at some point here, because maybe the Tennessee Titans have built a sustainable model of football. I think the Titans are going to miss the playoffs next year. And this is just because of how strong the AFC is and the fact that the Titans are a team that's tried their best to build a defense off of that 2019 season. But it seems like Tennessee's kind of stuck in neutral at this point. Yeah, but when you look at the AFC South, the Colts are their really only challenger and it's going to come down to is Matt Ryan what he's been the last four years in Atlanta? Or let's say he's just Jimmy Garoppolo. He doesn't have to be 2016 Matt Ryan. Then is that good enough to push the Colts who were a fringe playoff team into the playoffs or ahead of the Titans? Because the Titans even now, I think are still a more talented roster. They had massive improvements on defense. I think their biggest error was their offense. And I think that falls largely on the shoulders of one Todd Downing. And Todd Downing should not be an NFL offensive coordinator. He's failed every step along the way. So the fact that the Titans still try to make that work last year and 
replacing back-to-back offensive coordinators that became head coaches, I think was a misstep on their part. I think Todd Downey is just one of those guys that just rotates in and out of the league, but I, I think you should move on. Uh, Mike Vrabel's still a good coach, and I, I think he's still – the type of coach that gets his players to play regardless of who's on the roster, who's the starting quarterback. That's why, again, the relationship devolving between the Titans and AJ Brown is an interesting thing to note because I, I thought if the head coach is all in on a guy, he's going to try and make it work. And those two sides of the table come together in the middle. But unfortunately it just didn't seem to happen. I think the Titans are still going to be the best team in the AFC South because I don't see the Houston Texans making a massive leap this year. They might be a five, maybe a six win team if they're lucky, but not a massive leap. And then you look at the Jaguars, they're doing the right things now. I think Doug Peterson was an adult hire <laughs> to bring in as head coach. They did make some questionable contract decisions in free agency, but they did add more talented pieces than they originally had on the roster. So by virtue, they should be better in that. Yeah, they just, they won't be good enough to catch the Colts or Titans. You are correct. The thing I'm just doing is saying basically like the equivalent of a one bid league. It's a one playoff team division. It feels like only one team is going to make it out of that division. So here today, recording May 5th. Oh, Cinco de Mayo. Yes. You are saying the Colts are your favorite to win the AFC South. I think I just not saying I the trust, Texans are. You're not saying the Jaguars. No, yeah, are. no. The the Texans are, are gonna be the number one pick in the draft. Jaguars are gonna be like the worst team that's actively trying to win. The Jaguars are in Carolina Panthers territory, which is the worst team that's not trying to tank. I think and their big goal from this season is we just want to see some growth from Trevor Lawrence. It, yeah. And I mean, you said like they're doing the right things and yet universally kind of all the draft people I talked to basically said, yeah, Jaguars made the wrong pick with Trayvon Walker and that's okay. He'll still be a fine prospect. I've heard mixed <laughs> and, things on that. I've heard, I've heard the respect that they're drafting the prospect with the highest upside out of the ladder because a lot of people kind of look at Aiden Hutchinson and think he's a overperformer. A lot of people look at a Kayvon Thibodeau and look at him as an underperformer. A lot of people look at a Trayvon Walker and say he has untapped potential. And you look at the measurables, you can see that it's there, but that's sidetracked. Yeah, I was going to say, I have a, I have a bold take on uh, Derek Stingley being the best prospect in the class or with the highest upside because of the skill set that he has, but that's neither here nor there. You can justify taking Stingley with the first pick in the draft because of his upside. Anyways, the point with the Titans is like, I guess I'm picking the Colts, but either way, it's kind of semantics, right? Like we don't think of the Titans as a championship contender by any respect of the word. And as soon as Derek Henry's body breaks down, which Derek Derrick Henry might be the exception that proves the rule at the running back position. Altogether, he's getting close to that age where the body does start to break down. We saw it last year. He missed eight games with an injury that should have ended his season. He tried to come back to the playoff game and was a shell of himself against the Cincinnati Bengals. And they almost won because the Bengals almost threw the game away. Speaking on Derrick Henry, I do like them drafting Hassan Haskins in the fourth round. I think that that's a good person to add to their backfield rotation as Derrick Henry does get older. Mm-hmm. I, I like the idea there. And and it's the same idea as the wide receiver market is kind of the big story of the offseason in the NFL. And that continued with six wide receivers getting drafted in the first 16 to 18 picks of the draft and Hollywood Brown getting traded and AJ Brown getting traded is like last year, the Titans lost Corey Davis and John U. Smith and uh, Josh Reynolds in free agency. And they replaced him with Julio Jones, which was basically like, we can get that level of production from just Julio Jones and like Anthony Ferkser sliding in as tight end one. They just didn't expect Julio Jones to have half a hamstring coming in. 
exactly. It just didn't work. It was the right move. It just didn't work. They traded like a second and a sixth to get him and it just didn't work out. So what they did this year was instead of rolling out with AJ Brown and say another wide receiver of like three games of Sammy Watkins or something like that or whatever else, they basically just said, we're going to get Robert Woods and Traylon Burks and Austin Hooper. And we're just going to try and build out a stable of wide receivers instead of having one wide receiver. I think uh, the other part of this was that the Eagles gave them an offer they couldn't refuse, which you technically could have. I think this is going to be like a win-win situation there. But the fact that they got the 18 pick in the draft plus a third rounder for AJ Brown is incredible value, given that they spent a second rounder to draft him in the first place. And a large reason I'm hearing of why the Eagles made such an aggressive push to get AJ Brown after things just couldn't become a mutual agreement between the Titans and AJ Brown's camp was because the Eagles could just not jump into the top 10. They couldn't jump into the top 12 to get their hands on one of these six wide receivers that they wanted. So they saw AJ Brown as the best case scenario. And they already have their young rookie contract controlled wide receiver in Devontae Smith. So adding AJ Brown is a bold move for them because it also puts a lot more pressure on Jalen Hurts in this coming season. I I think a lot of us are still not willing to buy into Jalen Hurts as the long-term starter there in Philadelphia. And I think that that's completely fair because there were just games in which Jalen Hurts just imploded. He was one of the most wildly inconsistent starters in the NFL. And if you had to have him throw 30 times in a game, that was not a game that the Philadelphia Eagles were going to win. Now you have weapons like Devontae Smith and AJ Brown there. So if you're Eagles, if Jalen Hurts can't perform with these guys on the field, then that answers all questions. That leaves no doubts. And that gives you the opportunity to hit the eject button and move on to your next quarterback. They can they can go into the 2023 offseason and you know who they're going to get at quarterback? Ryan Tannehill. That's who they can bring in to play quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. That's- or a more electric quarterback draft class than the one that we are currently witnessing. You are correct. Even though they did all those moves, they still have two first round picks next year because Philadelphia just keeps kicking the can down the road on those picks. Yeah. The problem with Jalen Hurts is that he he does the same things as Lamar Jackson. And so people put him in the Lamar Jackson camp of he's their number one running back as well as being their quarterback. The problem is he's just not a good quarterback. Like he's just really inaccurate. And that's kind of a problem when you get to this stage of the NFL is that the, the turnovers will cost you and the inaccuracy will phase you out of the game just he like it's amazing like 10 years ago he would have been oh yeah perfect nfl quarterback like 10 years ago when 50 if he entered the league anytime pre yeah if you entered the league anytime pre aaron Rodgers, you would have been totally fine but yeah jalen i mean even like josh allen one of the biggest things people ask why are you so high on josh allen now well josh allen moved from being a 50 percent completion percentage guy to now throwing 70 percent on a given year yeah, it's an exception. Like it was exceptional that he did that. But yeah, Jalen Hurts has like a 61% completion percentage. And uh, can Jalen Hurts overcome that? Can he become Josh Allen? You know, relatively speaking, can he improve his completion percentage? If that's the one fault in his game, can he fix that? Uh, that all depends on the Eagles coaching staff to be able to hammer out the details. Uh, Nick Sirianni, hey, had a surprising season as a first year head coach to even make the Eagles a playoff team, regardless of how we thought no, they got no. there. They They were a playoff team. They were in the seven teams remaining in the (laughs) NFC. And they did... 
I still attest the tiebreakers were wrong. The Saints should have gotten that as the tiebreaker over the Eagles. The tiebreakers were just incorrect. Nah, I prefer the Eagles. They were scrappy. Yeah, sure. The last thing I had for the Titans is like Malik Willis might not be the long-term option for the Titans, but if they move off of Tannehill this offseason because his contract, they have an out in his contract at the end of this season. So his biggest cap hit is this year. And then if they get rid of him this offseason, it's only an $18 million dead cap hit to move off of him. So they can move off of Tannehill, have Willis either as the next quarterback for the Titans or just a stopgap until they find the next option. The only problem with Malik Willis is similar to Dak Prescott. Whenever you do draft these guys in the third, fourth round, you have one last year of team control. So yeah, um, oh, I assume the that, longer um, the Tannehill stays with the tight ends, the less the Malik Willis, you get to be able to take advantage of his cost controlled contract. So it does really set up, like you said, for this to be Ryan Tannehill's last year with the Tennessee tight ends from a financial standpoint, either way. So it doesn't exactly make you happy to hear that he's not embracing the mentor role if you're the tight ends, but that's what you're coaching staff is for at the end of the day it isn't his job it is the coaching staff's job it is the front office's job to make sure if you think Malik Willis can be your future quarterback you need to be taking that role because it's not going to be a guy who's competing with him for snaps in a position that only gets one guy starting and finishing each game remember that the Titans were in on Aaron Rodgers and they were in on Russell Wilson before they decided why the hell would I want to go play for the Titans so the the reality of just what man I I think the reality is, I know it's just, so basically the way I view it is like by, by all indications, the fact that they waited until the third round to get him and he kind of fell into their lap suggests that the Titans don't view Malik Willis as a high end starting quarterback of the future, because if they did, they would have picked him with pick 26. Yeah. I think the value just kind of made sense. Yeah. They just, they just view it as value. If you get anything more, if you found a Dak Prescott, let's say he becomes a Dak Prescott coming out of this round of the draft, then you win. You won the draft. In fact, you might be the ultimate winner of the draft because you had a quarterback in the later round. That's something that is a game changer in the NFL world that you didn't have to use high draft capital to get your starting quarterback. But that doesn't answer the obvious question of, do we believe Malik Willis can be that guy? There's still a lot of doubt and there is rightful doubt because in his games in which he went against some higher level competition went against division one competition he played awful Mm -hmm. I will say that if he does become the next Dak Prescott which is an easy example to throw out because Dak Prescott should have been a first round pick he had a DUI in college he fell to the fourth round etc if he becomes the next Dak Prescott I think we'd be less surprised by it than if like Bailey Zapp becomes the next Dak Prescott we'd be less surprised if Malik Willis became a high-end starter because we thought he might get drafted in the top 10 this year so I will credit the Titans for doing this to reading the room reading the entire draft room and saying they're not going to draft a quarterback they're not going to draft a quarterback they're going to wait on quarterback they're going to wait at quarterback because you mentioned it could have been very easy for them to jump at Malik Willis in the opening round to do it in the second round but for them to hold their ground hold their water like an offensive lineman hold your water and wait for Malik Willis to fall into their lap at the right value I think was very impactful and could really shift the scales in this draft yeah so the Titans remember um, going back to the draft for a second they trade down from 26. I think their first pick was Roger McCreary. They got a couple extra picks, et cetera, et cetera. So the Titans basically said, we're not going to jump at quarterback, which suggests that they view Malik Willis more as like, not, not a quarterback of the future, but like maybe 
quarterback of the best we can do in the future. It's hard to get quarterbacks. So it's like, I mean, he's only going to make a million dollars a year for four years. It's the best we can do while we transition quarterbacks. And they've been aggressive in going after quarterbacks in the past, but it burned them before obviously trading up to try and draft Marcus Mariota back in the day. I will be curious to see what their approach to the quarterback position is moving forward, because if we assume this is Ryan Tannehill's next year, do you enter camp with Malik Willis as the unquestioned starter? I don't think that that's a good way for them to go about it either. I think that they should bring in either another young quarterback through next year's draft or to scour the cheap veteran market and bring in some competition for Malik in that respect, unless he's just wowing you. Unless he just Uh, goes into training camp and he's just the perfect soldier, the good soldier and wowing everyone in practice. It it doesn't hurt to take a flyer. At pick 86, this is the right move for this Titans organization to make, especially with the young depth at quarterback in the AFC. You just kind of want to get your guy. You want to get your young guy that you're going to have for the next five to 10 years, considering that just around you, everyone else does. I mean, if we think that Trevor Lawrence is that guy, then individually, vision you have that guy going against I mean the Texans for all we laugh if Davis Mills who was the second best rookie quarterback last year ends up taking another step this year then maybe the Texans had their guy and you're the Titans you're the only team that has an aging average quarterback like Ryan Tannehill you just can't take that risk if you're them and you know that the Colts don't even have their guy they have Matt Ryan and he's maybe got two years in him The more likely scenario is like everyone leaves the Titans. So like the Titans don't really get to replenish their asset cupboard. Maybe the Colts stay at the top. Someone passes them, either the Jaguars or Texans. John Robinson leaves as GM, Vrabel leaves as coach. They probably tear it down at some point, or maybe they kind of stay in the middle. Who knows? We'll figure that out down the road, I suppose. These guys are on fire. Let's hear more. Second quarter starts now. Game on, as we welcome in the host of Game on Wisconsin, Brandon Snide. Uh, Brandon is also a writer for the Dairyland Express. Welcome to the Slump Buster. Hey, guys. Thank you uh, so much for having me. It's fun to join a podcast of you know fans of the other team that you're playing against in the playoffs. It's so much fun. I did it last year. I had a blast doing it. It's an honor to be here. I am excited to talk some, some playoff basketball with you fine gentlemen. Well, you know, you should know you're not really stepping in the lion's den here. Uh, Kyle, he hates the Celtics. I, I'm the lone representative. If anything, I'm at the disadvantage <laughs> here, even on my own show. So, but no, just like talking to different people, especially like I said, in the midst of a playoff series, in the midst of a 1 1 split in a playoff series, or both games. I mean, you guys just break away threes, incredible defense in game one. And then everything was falling for the Celtics in game two. We know the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle between these two performances. What are your big takeaways from the first two games? Those two games couldn't have been more different from each other than they were in games one and two. You know, game one was weird because as a Milwaukee Bucks fan, and I follow the team religiously, like funny story. I don't know if you can see this, but I have a Bucks tattoo on my arm and uh, bucks and six. So I followed them, you know, religiously. I watch every game and they suck. 
during day games. Like they are not good when there's a tip off between, you know, noon and two 30. And I know game three is on two 30 on Saturday. So again, I'll be interested to see how they come out on that one. So going into that first game one, I, I was like, that's going to be the Celtics game. They're going to have the energy. They're going to have the home crowd. The TD garden is always lit. It's going to be insane. And, and you've got an up and coming star in Jason Tatum. He's probably already arrived really. Um, and they just are a damn good sound basketball team. And it's going to be hard to sneak game one out, uh, in Boston in front of that home crowd. And they, they did. And convincingly, the Milwaukee Bucks went in there and dominated the, the, the boards. Giannis had a pretty awful day to his own standard shooting the basketball. You know, he did finish with a triple-double, which is kind of what we're, as Bucks fans, we're spoiled now. We're kind of used to something like that. And then game two, Jalen Brown went nuclear. I mean, was just shooting flames out of his fingertips. Uh, and it, we kind of had a feeling as a, as Bucks fans, as, as a guy that writes about the Bucks and talks about the Bucks, you didn't think you were going to sneak two out of Boston. You wanted to get one out of Boston. You accomplished that. It was a weird game one because it was an unpredicted win in a weird way. It was kind of a sloppy game, really from both sides of the ball, but really from more so on Boston in game one. And then game two, you weren't expecting Jalen Brown to come go, what was it, 25 points in the first half? I believe it was nine of 10 in the first half. He was insanely on fire, crossed over Grayson Allen, uh, you know, just a out standing performance but now i think the series really starts to begin i think this is it now both teams are kind of settling in the milwaukee bucks took one they took home court now could you say the pressure's back on the bucks it was on the the pressure was on boston in game two and they responded in a damn good way and now the pressure's back on milwaukee because now you have home court as bucks as the milwaukee bucks you're the defending champions you have the best player in the series i know celtics fan may say jason tatum is getting there and, and you have he probably will be soon enough if not already but now you have to defend home court if you're the Milwaukee Bucks and I really truly think this series out of all the series you know Miami's probably on their way to winning Phoenix is probably going to win that series Memphis and Golden State's a good one but Boston and Milwaukee because they play a brand of basketball guys that we don't see a whole lot you know it's that defense you know we don't see a lot of defense in the NBA and these are probably two of the top teams uh, defensively I know the Bucks are in the top team uh, so far in the playoffs although it was against the Chicago Bulls and obviously Boston's been doing it all year long. So it's going to be a grind out series. I think it's the best series right now in the NBA and it's just starting. Both teams got to win and games three and four are going to be huge. Well, you mentioned Giannis's performances in the first couple games because he had the triple-double in three quarters. He's shooting like 38% from mm -hmm. the field, which is less than average. And also, like, it didn't matter in game one, especially when when Drew Holiday was putting up the, the performance he was. And they shot close to 40% from three until the end of the game. The numbers went down a bit. So how do you feel about Bucks Giannis offensively so far in this series against the Celtics defense that kind of said just collapse on Giannis and, and let everyone else try and beat them yeah, that's a great question that's the thing that we were worried as bucks fans going into this series when chris middleton went down you know you took care of business against the chicago bulls now chris middleton goes down in game three against the chicago bulls and really you didn't miss a beat in fact the offense in uh, in that series not in general but in that series was better grayson allen 22 points 27 points he outscored uh, Levine and DeRozan combined in game three and four. I mean, he kind of stepped up in a big way. Bobby Portis took on a bigger role, uh, inserted into the starting lineup. You know, the scoring was kind of distributed evenly for without Chris Middleton's absence, but the offense has to come from somewhere. Chris Middleton, although he struggled in the first two games against Chicago, he's a career 20 point 
scorer on average. I mean, he's can create his own shot. He's hits big shots. When Giannis went down with the freak knee injury um, last year in the Eastern conference final, Chris Middleton stepped up, closed out that series, had 40 points. The scoring has to come from somewhere. Look, there's no secret. Boston's defense is legit and they play Giannis tough, maybe tougher than any other team. Grant Williams, you know, is a rock. Uh, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, obviously Marcus Smart, uh, defensive player of the year. Uh, We won't get into that debate because I'll get mad. (laughs) You know, he is somebody that the offense, he's the offense has to come from somewhere. And where's it going to come from? It's guys have to step up and Giannis, he's not going to, nothing's going to come easy. You know, we we've seen him have offensive struggles in the regular season against Miami, for example, with Bam Adebayo, Robert Williams is one of those guys that can give Giannis fits. He's athletic. He's a little bit lighter on his feet, but he's still athletic enough to cause problems for him. And that's where guys like Drew holiday, Bobby Portis, Grayson Allen, these guys, Pat Connaughton coming off the bench, they got to step up and they got to hit big shots. We know that Mike Budenholzer isn't really known for his adjustments. We already saw that Ime made a big adjustment in putting Daniel Thais, you're on the bench. Sorry, you're not coming off. You're staying on the bench, having to adjust behind Marcus Smart being out and having to work the rotation of Derek White and Peyton Pritchard. What is Budenholzer's adjustment after that miserable game too? Yeah, I think that the thing about Coach Bud is under Coach Mike Budenholzer for the Milwaukee Bucks, the winner of game three, whether it be the Bucks or whether it be another team, winner of game three has won the series 100% of the time, no matter what, no matter how the game has gone. Now, obviously having the adjustments, how do you adjust against Boston? Because Boston is more of a you know well-rounded team than I think in, 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 in the first series against Chicago. You obviously knew where the points were coming from with Chicago, Levine, DeRozan. Boston can beat you on a lot of different fronts. They can shut you down uh, offensively. They can make things tough for you. Uh, Marcus Smart, I'm assuming, is coming back to play in game three after his uh, thigh contusion. Jalen Brown, we saw it in game two, can explode at any given moment. And Jason Tatum can go off and destroy anybody for any given amount of time. Um, so the adjustments for Boston are tough. I think if you're the Milwaukee Bucks, you just got to play your brand of basketball. And that's like a cliche type thing to say, but I think it's legit. You know, if you're the Milwaukee Bucks, do what works for you. And I, I wish they would play Brooke Lopez down with his back to the basket more than they do. And I don't understand why he's seven one. I like Robert Williams. I don't think Al Horford can defend uh, Brooke Lopez down low. I think if you fed Brooke Lopez, even Giannis, because we've seen Giannis take how many offensive charges does the guy cause a game? I mean, 12 in the first round. I can tell you that. I don't know how many right now. 12 in the first round. If they played them down low in the box. Now, again, I understand, you know, they won a championship. And I can't complain doing what they're doing now, but I wish they would take advantage of the size that they have against Boston, because I think as great defensively as Boston is, if you are playing at the top of the key, you're playing to what they want you to play. And that's Boston. That is, they want you, they want Giannis to drive the basketball. They want to collapse that defense and they're going to force you uh, drew holiday, Pat Connaughton, Bobby Porter. They're going to force those guys to try to beat you. If you play Don Giannis down low, Maybe Brooke Lopez down low. You have that size advantage. You have the rebound advantage. I think you can take advantage of it. But as far as the adjustments, I think you're not going to see a ton of Mike Budenholzer. I think it is kind of what they are. We've noticed last year it would drive us nuts because we would watch Trey Young in the Eastern Conference Finals, and it was literally the only offensive weapon they had, and he would just not make any adjustments to him, and he would make Trey Young beat him. And obviously that didn't you know work out for the Atlanta Hawks, but Boston's different. They're a better team. Uh, like I said, well-rounded. How do you stop Jalen Brown? How do you stop Jason Tatum? 
it's a lot easier said than done. You've got a couple of good defenders, uh, Wes Matthews, Drew Holiday, obviously, and then obviously there's Giannis. They're going to see different things. I think what it is for the Milwaukee Bucks is they got to start out better. I mean, Boston went on, what was it, 15 to three to open the game and in, 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 in game two and, and really never looked back. And, and it was a 20 point deficit by halftime. The Milwaukee Bucks have, that's, they struggled against that with that against the Chicago Bulls. The only game the Chicago Bulls won in that series, they started out nine and nine, nine Oh run uh, to begin the game for Milwaukee. It's getting out uh, and playing with some energy and, and, and they're kind of a weird team. It's a frustrating team. You love them because they won a championship in their, in their my team. But when they flip a switch, you just, you can see like, damn, like these guys, you know, they bam, like Drew Holiday's not turning over the ball. Giannis isn't turning over the ball. Guys are hitting their shots. Guys are playing defense. Guys are getting loose balls. And there's moments where they're just not doing any of it. And you saw it in game two. So without Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday's had to kind of take 20 to 25 shots a game and fill that role. Obviously game one, he shot like 55%. Game two, he shot 35%. And the results kind of bear out in the same way. Uh, it's, it's more out of necessity than it is like this is an ideal game plan, but how do you feel about him being a, a volume shooter or volume scorer during this series? What In the regular season, it was like the last month, we were calling him fourth quarter Drew. So when they started out the, the month of March, they had a brutal schedule. Uh, they had like Charlotte, they had Miami, uh, they had Chicago on back-to-backs. Like they had a tough schedule. And we were calling him fourth quarter drew because that well chris middleton was obviously still playing uh but he was lighting it up in the fourth quarter he was really offensively carrying them for those games especially those closeout games i think i make the argument that he's one of the best two-way players in the nba and does that affect his offensive game of what he does on the defensive side of the ball it could i trust drew holiday i've seen him play only one year, the one year he did play, we obviously won a NBA championship and I've seen him make big time shots and big time moments. And that's a guy that I trust. I just don't know if it's enough without Chris Middleton. We haven't seen a whole lot. This is the first series he got. Chris Middleton went out. He, we're not going to see him in this series for sure. He went out game three of Chicago series. So we we had a few games with Chris Middleton, but it was, again, it wasn't, no offense to Chicago, it wasn't the Boston Celtics. The defense is not even close uh, on the same path. I think Chicago actually in the first round had the worst defense in the playoffs uh, among the, you know, uh, X amount of teams. How many that they ever count? I know there's a play in tournaments. So there's like half the league is in the, in the playoffs. Uh, so, you know, I trust him. Is it going to be enough? To carry a team, probably not. I'm not saying Milwaukee's going to lose the series, but guys have to step up. We, like I mentioned, we saw Grayson Allen drop 22 and 27 in the absence of Chris Middleton. Now, Drew Holiday was still averaging over 20 points, but if Drew Holiday is just at 20 points, roughly 22 points, Giannis is going to get his 26, 28. It's not going to be enough. We need other guys to step up. I trust Drew Holiday to hit those shots. I trust Drew Holiday to play a little bit of offense. Um, but again, they are going to need somebody else to step up. I think the three-point shooting is a big storyline in the first two games, and particularly for the Bucs throughout the season, as the Bucs actually allowed the most like open three-point opportunities in the NBA. If teams knock them down like the Celtics did in game two, that's going to be a problem, and that's how you fall behind in 20, 30 points in a game. In game one, obviously, that didn't happen for the Celtics. They weren't hitting anything. They couldn't hit the ocean if they jumped off the <laughs> boat. That's where Jalen Brown was. Like, Who needs to step up on the perimeter? Because right now, it's about a 70 two-point opportunities versus 93-point opportunities for the Celtics in games one and two. I know. I think in the first half, too, in game two, they were like 13 of 20. I mean, it was 
God, I don't remember seeing a game where a team shot as good as they did for the longest time in the season. Look, losing Chris Middleton is one thing on the offensive side of the ball. Defensively, you're not losing a whole lot. And I, I say that with all the respect in the world. I love Chris Middleton. But uh, Wes Matthews has to be better defensively. He was brought back to this team. If you remember, he was with the Bucs, or maybe you don't remember, he was with the Bucs during their run in 2020 before COVID hit, then the bubble, uh, then the Bucs got bounced in the second round by the Miami Heat. And so then he played for the uh, Los Angeles Lakers. Then he came back to Milwaukee this year and he was brought back for one specific reason. And it was just to really play defense. He's not asked to score a lot. He hits a few threes here and there. He hits some shots here and there, but defensively he gave DeRozan fits. Uh, in round one, DeRozan still exploded for 41 in game two, but he did not go over 25 points after that, after game two. And that was a lot of that was to do with Wesley Matthews. Wesley, Wesley Matthews, I think, has to be better defensively against guys. Like he's going to match up with Jason Tatum. Uh, you saw Giannis match up with Jason Tatum. The Bucks switch everything. Uh, defensively, and they play a lot of drop zone, which means that when they switch, they're really just dropping down and they're sagging into that paint and they're not, they don't want to score in the paint. Now, is that an adjustment Mike Boonholzer makes? Because again, no offense to Robert Williams. I don't think he's going to beat you in the paint in a series. You know, he may have a good game, but I don't think you, you're, you're going to win this series. If you're the Boston Celtics or you're Boston Celtics fans, you're, you're going to win this game or this series because Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown led the way for you. And that's just that's just a fact of the matter. And I think having you know, Wesley Matthews step up defensively, we got to see Drew Holiday be better defensively, staying out of foul trouble. We've seen Drew Holiday getting a lot of foul troubles early against the Chicago Bulls. So Drew Holiday, I would say, obviously, Wes Matthews and guys off the bench, Grayson Allen and Pat Connaughton are the first two guys off the bench because now Bobby Portis is pulled in uh, into the starting lineup in the absence of Chris Middleton. But again, Bobby Portis isn't here for his defense either. Um, so you got you can only rely on a handful of guys defensively. It's it's, it's a team thing. Uh, but again, the Bucks switch everything. It comes down to Wes Matthews, Drew Holiday, Pat Connaughton and Grayson Allen. They've they got to be better, be better defensively. So if that's a concern on the defensive end of the floor, do you think the rotations are fine as they are? Or do you think you could switch that up as the series goes along? No, and we've seen it with Mike Budenholzer. I think the rotations are fine. He keeps them short in the playoffs. Depending on the round, it, it, it's eight, maybe nine uh, at the most. Your first few guys off the bench are, are uh, Grayson Allen. Grayson Allen really comes in in the first six minutes. Um, uh, and then it's Pat Connaughton usually after that. Now, obviously, Chris Middleton being out, you're going down your bench a little bit more. Um, but we haven't seen him dip into that bench a whole lot. I think the rotations have been very good. He's set in his ways. You're kind of seeing it in Memphis too. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, Taylor Jenkins, the coach down in Memphis who coached under, he was in Milwaukee under a, an assistant with Budenholzer. You've seen him with his guys too. John Morant down in Memphis, he won't go over, you know, an X amount of minutes. They have a, a restriction set in place. And that's just, you know, Mike Budenholzer, unless it's the NBA finals or the Eastern Conference finals, guys aren't going over 35 minutes. Um, he keeps those down. I think the rotations are fluid. Having uh, guys like Wesley Matthews and Pat Connaughton, both of them are very good defenders. They got to be better uh, defensively overall. In terms of the title chances, as we look ahead, because when you do a weekly podcast, some stuff ages out quick. Um, the Miami Heat seem firmly in hand, um, yep. leading the Philadelphia 76ers on the other side of the bracket. How do you think the Bucks match up with the Miami Heat if that ends up being the Eastern Conference Finals? That's it's a doozy because... Tyler Hero is playing out of his mind right now. 
Uh, maybe not out of his mind. Maybe this is just who he is. Uh, we've seen in his rookie year, they go to the NBA finals and they, you know, they just ran into the Lakers and Anthony Davis and LeBron James are playing at a different level, but man, they're good. <laughs> and they've been showing it all year. I mean, defensively with, you know, and this is without Kyle Lowry in these first few games against uh, Philly, you know, uh, Jimmy Butler and Bam together defensively, uh, you know, you mix in the shooting that they have with Duncan. I know he's not having the the year he had a few years ago, Duncan Robinson, that is Tyler Heroes, obviously playing uh, sixth man of the year. And then you got PJ Tucker. And if you're a Bucks fan, you know all about PJ Tucker. He just celebrated his 37th birthday and, you know, he's like going the other way with the age. Um, but man, they're, they're a problem. Um, and I think they're a problem for any team. I'll tell you this though. And I've said this on my podcast. I've said this to friends and, and family. The winner of this series, Boston Milwaukee, is going to the NBA Finals. Now, obviously, you got to get through Miami. The winner of this series is going to go on. As much as I respect Miami, they're not playing really anybody right now. And that's respect to, you know, Philly. I get it. James Harden is a shell of himself. Uh, Tyrese Maxey is as great as he is, as quick as he is, as fun as he is to watch. He's not a superstar. You don't have Joel Embiid. Miami's not getting pushed. They didn't get pushed in round one. They're probably not going to get pushed in round two. And it's kind of like last year. If you remember Brooklyn and Milwaukee in round two, it went seven games. A lot of people said, you know, that's the win. Whoever wins that series is going to move on. Uh, The reason I say that is because Milwaukee and Boston both play defense I think above what Miami does Miami's great as a team but I don't think defensively they're on the level where Milwaukee and and Boston are right now I think the chances are for either one of these teams Milwaukee or Boston if they do go to that next round it's going to be it's not going to be easy you know every round gets tougher uh, if you've you know cheered on a basketball team that's gone to the NBA finals you realize every round your blood pressure goes up and up and up but I think that uh, the chances of the Bucks repeating, uh, it's tough. You know, it depends on where the Chris Middleton thing is. I don't think they can win a title without Chris Middleton. I think when you take a number two scoring option off of any team, Boston lost Jalen Brown. If Miami lost Bam Adebayo, you're probably not winning. Like it's, it's hard. And, and we don't know where Chris Middleton is with the knee. Uh, there was an update today, but it was very vague. Uh, there was <laughs> Mike Budenholzer actually said there is no update. So that's basically as vague as it can get as far as uh, an update with the with the injury. But if Milwaukee doesn't get Chris Middleton back, they're going to struggle in this round. This round's going probably six or seven, uh, minimum of six, I think. But if you are able to get past Boston, if you're if you're the Milwaukee Bucks, um, your only shot at beating Miami is full strength. And we've seen it last year as Bucks fans. Health, it's luck. You know, it's like any team that wins a championship. There's luck involved for any of it. There's got to be something that falls your way. And last year, the Bucks stayed healthy. I'll other than that freak accident to Giannis, but somehow he like had magic growing in his knee and he was completely fine, you know, going to the NBA finals or not fine, but he was able to play. Um, but I think if they can, if the, if the Bucks and the Celtics, either one of those teams can stay healthy. I know Marcus Smart's probably going to be back for game three in his uh, thigh contusion. I think if, if either team is healthy enough going into the Eastern Conference Finals, I think they beat Miami. I, I don't think it's a seven-game series. I think both teams probably win that, win that series in six games. Fair and balanced, objective takes. Appreciate you, man. Um, all right. You got to give all the plugs. You got to tell us where we can find your content if, oh. regrettably, I have to listen to Milwaukee Bucks <laughs> content in the next round. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I just, uh, I appreciate you guys, man. It was, I love jumping on these podcasts and, and, you know, I call it like it is. I'm a realist. I'm a homer. You know, if I'm, you're in my living room and I'm watching the game, I'm cussing at the TV and yelling at the wall and yeah, you know, hey, yeah, you know, bucks and six. Yeah. So you can follow, you can follow me on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, I usually follow everybody back. I try to at Brandon underscore snide. I host a podcast every Friday uh, over on game on Wisconsin. You can follow them on Twitter. It's a network that we have a bunch of podcasts um, at game on WI. I have a show. My initials are BS. So I had to have a little fun with it. My show is called cut the BS. Um, and it's a weekly podcast right now. It's pretty much bucks because there is no other sport really going on. Baseball just started. I'm a big baseball fan. I see the giants stuff in the background. I respect it. So yeah, I break down uh, Wisconsin sports and then you can follow uh, my writing work uh, over at dairylandexpress.com covering the Packers, the Bucks, and the Brewers. The Slumbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now. My draft topic for 2022 is a conversation we we kind of skipped over last year, but we, we were talking about a lot in 2020, which is best player available and value versus the positions of need. And this could relate to the wide receiver market and how like six wide receivers were taken in the top 18. There's two teams I wanted to focus in on for this idea, which was the New York Giants and the Baltimore Ravens, because I saw the New York Giants take the two players who for the pre-draft process, like after last year, when people were doing like way too early mock drafts for 2022 and during the college football season, what I was seeing was Kayvon Thibodeau and Evan Neal are the two best prospects in the draft class. And for some reason in the last three months that changed, it, it was Trayvon Walker. It was Aiden Hutchinson. It was Derek Stingley. It was Sauce Gardner. It was these people who were viewed as less talented prospects for years then Kayvon Thibodeau and Evan Neal. Those were the two guys that I kept seeing as like, they're going to be one and two picks in the draft. And if you're the New York Giants and you draft Thibodeau and Neal because other teams didn't, that's where you could possibly find value within the margins. Because if you view Thibodeau and Evan Neal as these really great prospects, or like everyone thought they were these great prospects when they were sophomores in college, that's how you get value. Because you're getting number one pick at number five, or you're getting a number three pick at the number seven pick. And the Ravens did the same thing where they got Kyle Hamilton at pick 14 and Tyler Lindenbaum at 25 because they traded uh, Hollywood Brown. So if you follow what the Ravens did, it's actually pretty incredible. Baltimore drafted Hollywood Brown with the 25th pick in the 2019 draft. And then they traded Hollywood Brown for the 23rd pick. And then they gave up pick 100, which is like an end of third round compensatory pick. And then from 23, Three, they traded down to 25 with Buffalo. So Buffalo could pick Kyir Elam and they got back a fourth round pick, only about 10 picks off of the pick that they gave up to Arizona so that they could get pick 23 and trade Hollywood Brown. So basically they drafted Hollywood Brown with the 25th pick in the draft and then just traded him again for the 25th pick in the draft 
three years later, which is kind of weird about the value plays that you find in the NFL from creating picks out of thin air and trading down and all that stuff. So the Ravens and Giants just took best player available in the first round. And I feel like that's a great way to create value when you have so many needs available when say the Jaguars are taking Trayvon Walker, who as great as a prospect he might be, I mean, Blake Jude, our buddy had him as his 11th graded prospect and pretty was pretty distraught when he saw Trayvon Walker get picked number one by the Jaguars because there were so many better prospects. And we saw, obviously, the wide receivers all go one after the other, which was surprising. I don't think we thought not only four wide receivers would go in the top 12, multiple teams would trade up a dozen slots in order to get a wide receiver. So as everyone moves for wide receivers, it feels like the Ravens and Giants took best players available. And that's an interesting thing that we talked about in 2020, but stopped talking about last year. Well, I think for both those franchises, I think it's a good philosophy shift because obviously if you're the Giants, you're on a new GM. So you just need to change the temperature in the room. You just need to get some of Gettleman's draft picks out. I think one of the big headlines a couple of days before the draft was that Daniel Jones didn't get his fifth year option picked up. We know that they were trying to trade off um, Kadarius Tony last year's first round pick. And you don't actually Sa- know if Saquon Barkley is going to be on the Giants or not. Saquon Barkley is still one of the big question marks. So it was important for them to come out swinging in this first round. And you mentioned taking two guys that wildly talented, but had lost some star power heading into the draft, have lost some of that shine that they had in the pre-draft process. And Evan Neal and Kayvon Thibodeau, you start from the trenches. And even though we we ta- have these discussions about getting all these weapons and these wide receivers, starting from the trenches still is a philosophy that wins in the NFL. Andy Reid loves to build from the trenches. The 49ers love to build from the trenches. And the fact that every now and then they just get blessed with a Tyreek Hill or a Debo Samuel is arbitrary. It's just because those two franchises have elite offensive minds at the head coaching position that they're able to develop guys. So building from the trenches and figuring out the rest out later is a good strategy for team building. And that's probably if I was an NFL GM, probably where I would start first as well, building out the lines on both sides. Because if I can knock the other quarterback on his ass half the time, then that is going to be a winning formula. I just need to obviously figure out the quarterback position and I need to figure out the rest of the team in the background. But if you're the Giants, you didn't have that guy in this year's draft to fix your quarterback position. So you might as well get some guys on team-friendly, controllable contracts while they're there in front of you. So take the guy that fits your philosophy for building out this roster in the future and get the guys that you think will be assets when you do find your quarterback if you do find your quarterback as far as for the Baltimore Ravens they do have their quarterback so they have to build around their quarterback they have to build around him in the best way they see fit and I know that Lamar had the trendy what the fuck reaction after Marquise Brown got traded but even if we're being honest Lamar Hollywood Brown is probably not the best wide receiver for your skill set he's not the guy that best utilizes what you're good at having a dynamic athletic bullying center like Tyler Lindebaum will probably be the best person to amplify this running game that Baltimore loves to build. And you talk about getting like a safety gain a Hamilton there in the first round. We know that the Ravens had a bad defensive backfield last year. I go back to the games against Cincinnati where they were just getting torched. Joe Burrow was throwing for 500 yards on them, 600 yards on them. 
it was like a Madden game, just seeing Jamar Chase run up and down the sidelines on them. You needed to fix that defensive backfield. Uh, you don't know what you're going to get with your cornerbacks coming off of injury. So getting a guy like Kyle Hamilton, someone that could guard those guys deep, is Ooh, the smart move But this move point, make. too, this was the point I was making with that, too, is not just getting someone in the secondary. According to Blake Jude, the greatest safety prospect since Jamal Adams. You slide in at pick 14 in the draft. Don't, don't, don't bring up Jamal Adams here in this. I'm trying that, to praise uh, Kyle Hamilton. Don't, don't do that to him. What? No, the internet is wrong to hate Jamal Adams. Anyways. Uh, so, well, if we're talking about Kyle <laughs> Hamilton is a great safety prospect, we're not talking about him as best defensive end prospect. Hey, shout out to Jamal if he wants to be an outside linebacker. But can we say like, I don't know. Derwin James. Derwin James. Derwin James would be a better comp if we're going to Blake go there, Jude but. loved Derwin James, and he still says Kyle Hamilton was is a much better prospect than even Derwin James. And the fact that he slid to 14 is incredible value for Baltimore if he's that type of prospect, regardless of the position he plays. I know everyone yeah, craps on safeties aren't valuable. It, it's a chess match. And the Baltimore Ravens looked at their division. They looked at what was killing them last year. And yes, a lot of it was injury, but now you just can't count on those guys that were injured to just come back and be those same guys. You can't count on Marcus Peters to come back and just be the same Marcus Peters. And even if before that, he was kind of a declining player. Now you just need to get someone who revitalizes that position. And Kyle Hamilton could be that guy. Linderbaum can definitely be that guy. And the Ravens are built around having a good offensive line. So why not make it a great offensive line and get a guy that just will be in the middle, in the middle of your lineup for what, 10 years? They hope so. I mean, the Ravens had a terrible offensive line last year and Ronnie Stanley's also had two consecutive season ending injuries, but I would trade (laughs) Hollywood Brown for Lindenbaum. If Lindenbaum is going to be that, I'd trade it all day because Hollywood Brown, basically the first three years of Hollywood Brown's career are the equivalent of Corey Davis's first three years of his NFL career. And it sounds like it's mutual too. I should add Mm -hmm. with that, with Hollywood Brown leaving, it sounds like it's mutual because he put out there immediately, he believes the offense just wasn't best for him and anyone watching the game could tell that the offense wasn't best for him. I think he'll be a much more dynamic player with Kyler Murray in Arizona. Oh, it'll be interesting to watch. I'll say that. I don't know exactly how that'd play out, but it'll be interesting. They're going to run a lot more verts. They're going to do some stuff that utilizes his straight line speed. Yeah, Baltimore. Uh, yeah, you're right. The offense didn't go to that. Maybe that's what's best for Hollywood. And you Brown, need guys in Baltimore offense is built to have more guys that have a little bit of punch guys that kind of like hit you like a Debo Samuel. And that's just not Hollywood Brown. Maybe Perriman's that yeah. guy. Maybe Rashad it's- Bateman's that guy. But it's also a Greg Roman offense. So like the Greg Roman offense is all about running the football and option plays and wide receivers being tucked close to the line. And Mark Andrews was always the number one receiver on that team. And I think we overlook that sometimes because he plays tight end. And Hollywood wants that Hollywood contract. And he wasn't going to do that in Baltimore. I gotta be honest. There's only a couple places. Cause like I mentioned Corey Davis, that's basically where his stats line up to Corey Davis got the big contract from the jets. And then he put up a dud of a first season with the jets. So clearly he shouldn't have gotten that kind injuries, of injuries but... though. It, it was injuries with Corey Davis. I know. I know. Be fair. And actually Corey Davis also had his best games when Zach Wilson was not in the lineup, which is the question the jets fans will have to answer at some point. 
Yeah, but they just decided that Corey Davis was the problem for some reason in that because they just changed the entire receiving room over one offseason. Corey Davis, a top 100 player, according to NFL players, whenever they do their NFL 100. So exactly. He and that, in the league. It's the same idea as Hollywood Brown. The fact that they got a first round pick for him when they did, if the Titans had gotten an offer for a first round pick on Corey Davis, I'm sure they would have taken it also. It's just how value plays out sometimes. The Cardinals also paid a premium so that they could get Kyler Murray's college teammate to come play for them and also the wide receivers all got drafted really quickly so yeah it's a it's a conversation about value right which and that could bring up the question of the cardinals going out there to get a guy like hollywood brown was that the right value play for them because you mentioned all the wide receivers that went early in this draft a lot of people will say this is the best wide receiver draft since last year's wide receiver draft was the best year since that year's wide receiver well, draft. And we're just seeing a moment in time where the wide receiver position there's just a lot of good wide receivers coming out year after year after year there's at least five or six each year that we're looking at it's like damn that guy went in the second round damn that guy went in the third round damn that guy went in the fourth round and now seeing those four guys up top, you're like, they better be gold jacket wearing guys or they're not going to be able to live up to their value. So I think we're realize- we're either realizing that everyone's now overpaying wide receivers to compensate for the fact they don't have Patrick Mahomes or the rules have changed and the NFL has moved to a place where we've been undervaluing wide receivers for the last 10 years. And the answer is probably somewhere in the middle is that we were undervaluing wide receivers and some people are really overpaying for wide receivers. Like I think Tyree Kill's not going to work out, but AJ Brown is probably going to work out. It's going to be a mixed bag it's of a matter results. Of fit. Yeah. It matters which team they go to. It matters who's the quarterback. It matters who's the offensive coordinator. It matters the philosophy. It matters, do you get separation off the line? Are you better at running this route or that route? There are so many variables that affect whether a wide receiver will actually fit into the offense that doesn't all necessarily come down to 40 times or measurables. It matters a lot where you land. The rare exceptions, mm-hmm. those guys like, hell, I'll mention like an Amon Ross St. Brown, who was amazing last year in Detroit. And we didn't think he was going to be anything special, but no, he was awesome down the stretch run in Detroit. Now I'm curious how Jamison Williams is going to fit there in Detroit because skill set wise, it doesn't say like him and Jerry. Goff would make a lot of sense together but obviously we saw Almond Ross St. Brown works and he was drafted at a much lesser value than Jamison Williams yeah I think Jamison Williams just has the pure talent and they're banking on him to be the number one and Amon Ross St. Brown to be the number two I assume that's what they're doing just based on pure talent but this was the conversation we had of would you rather be top pick in the draft who didn't quite pan out or fourth rounder like Amon Ross St. oh they also signed DJ Chark so DJ Chark is like a wide receiver three that's kind of how Not they're building wide that receiver out. three um, it, it's just all going to come on the shoulders of one Jared Goff. And well, it'll come on the shoulders of whoever they draft to replace Jared Goff. But, but sure, obviously yes. that's not this year. It's not this year. You're you're right. Yes. Think about all the teams that reached on wide receivers this offseason. So we have the Raiders, the Dolphins, the Eagles, the Falcons, maybe the Jets. Well, we'll push back on reached just for a guy like Devontae Adams. If you're getting those guys that you can look at and say their skill set should be able to translate like a Devontae who, who's so elite, who's mm-hmm. so damn elite, then I, I think that that's where you can kind of justify it because the Raiders drafting Devontae Adams this year, I, I think is a justifiable roster move. Tyree Kill maybe a little questionable, but I think if we look at him 
pre-Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. He was still a dynamic enough player to where I don't think that that is a, as bad a move. But okay, there there are some obvious yeah. other reaches. So, I think so Hollywood let me, to be a reach. Let me rephrase it. So let's say the major wide receiver moves of the offseason. It doesn't have to be a reach because that's kind of projecting that I think some of the moves won't work out. Let's say the major wide receiver moves of the offseason. So it was the Adams trade, the Tyreek Hill trade, A.J. Brown trade, Hollywood Brown trade, Falcons reaching on Drake London, Saints trading up for Chris Olave, Detroit trading up for Jamison Williams. We have Christian Kirk signing with the Jaguars. Um, we could throw Garrett Wilson to the Jets, although that felt like a lot of people were mocking that as, as a possible draft pick. So I'm not going to go too far on that one. It's like seven or eight different moves. And it would be easy for us to say all seven of the teams that reached on wide receivers succeed or all seven of the teams that reached on wide receivers will fail. No, it's probably no. going to be a four and three. And that's going to be difficult to analyze how much we value wide receivers because of this experiment we're having. Every offseason, we go through the top 10 free agent signings or the top 10 draft picks. And usually by the end of the season, when we recalibrate it, it's guys that weren't even on our radar. It was the DJ Charks that ended up being the best wide receiver signing of the offseason by pure stat value to act like we had the foresight to know we can only just say, hey, you're getting elite talent. Elite talent should work out anywhere. But by the end of the season, we're going to look at this and there's going to be some weird wide receiver, some Wally Pip comes out of nowhere and has was the best. Yeah, I know. Squad it's signing. Yeah, it's going to be Sky Moore because he's going to somehow have five, 1,500 yards in the Kansas City Chiefs offense. Just somehow. landed in the right offense for the right yeah. team with the right quarterback and the right OC to use their skill set. That's my, how the NFL oh, works. That's why like you see so many quarterbacks fail in draft. Well, my my hypothesis around this is that a lot of teams are, are paying big money for wide receivers to overcompensate for the fact that they can't acquire a franchise quarterback. The Raiders are an interesting case because they've decided Derek Carr is a franchise quarterback, although we have debates every year about how good Derek Carr is. I say I've seen Derek Carr be ninth in the league in QBR and 28th in QBR. So he's kind of the middle of the of the bar there. But think, at the oh, same time, I think a lot of people can look at him and say that he could do what Matthew Stafford could do. Yeah, pretty much. Right I team. think of him as like, he's close to the cutoff point of do you have a franchise quarterback or not? But I mean, Dolphins, they don't know about Tua. Eagles, I mean, the Dolphins tried to get Tom Brady. And the Eagles tried to get Deshaun Watson. A, that's a different change of philosophy that I'm seeing a lot of teams doing is they're putting pressure on these quarterbacks that they're not sure of. Okay, we got you some weapons. Do something. Do something. Mm-hmm. Show us it. Giants did it last year with um Daniel Jones. Jones. Hey, we got you Kenny Galladay. Hey, we got you Kadavius Tony, we got you a first round wide receiver. We can have debates over whether those were the right pieces or not, but they were better pieces than they had a season prior. And it was up to Daniel Jones. Okay, you have better talent than you had last year. Can you make that improvement? And if you can, yeah. then you're not our guy. So like game and with we Tua, can, you know, yeah. game, I'm, I'm giving you a pseudo Hall of Fame wide receiver. Can you do something with it? I, I already got you a first round wide receiver from Alabama. You showed you could work with him. What's next for Tua? Can you take that next step? I think that that's an interesting thing that GMs are starting to pressure quarterbacks as quarterback becomes more of a revolving door on a yearly basis because now if you haven't shown that you're a special talent in year one or year two, 
you're gone. And to add to your point, like we, you could go down the list of examples of this, whether it was Kirk Cousins with the Vikings or whether it's Joe Burrow or Baker Mayfield, you can go down the line and find other examples of this. Like that, that's how teams are overcompensating. The Jets are trying to do it this offseason too. The Jets are like, uh, the, the Jaguars tried. They ended up with Christian Kirk and Zay Jones, but they at least tried to build out a receiving core around Trevor Lawrence. The Jets at least tried. They're like, if we can't give you enough to make us a competitive football team let's just do the best we can kyler murray to to hollywood brown same ideas like they're overpaying for hollywood brown with the hope that the chemistry between him and kyler murray translates to when he gets to arizona so it'll be interesting to see if it works out because i'm defaulted to believe now i mean just from evidence of the last five years of the nfl that you either get a special wide receiver or you get a special quarterback and that's the thing that translates and if you don't have one of those it's probably not going to work out the more likely scenario is it's going to be a mixed bag between who succeeds and who fails, I would assume. Like the the Packers went and got Christian Watson. The Chiefs got Sky Moore. By the way, I don't think the Chiefs needed to do anything with the receiving core. The Chiefs receiving core is awesome going into next year. And those teams are finding value within the margins, but they also have franchise quarterbacks. Same thing with Baltimore. Mike Clay did a list of like positional grades and he had the Ravens as the worst receiving core in the NFL because Rashad Bateman is their number one and Mark Andrews is their true number one. And that might be, be very well the case but for the Ravens, they probably don't need a better wide receiving core. They probably need their value to be more on their offensive line. They need their value exactly. to be in their quarterback. So each team changes the position of need. And this is where the mindset of drafting best talent available is probably the correct mindset to have. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. For the second time, Dieter Kernebach of KNDR and host of Locked on Warriors. Dieter, it's been a month, but it feels like years. How are you following a couple of heart-pounding games in Memphis? Well, I won't lie. I'm pretty angry after game two. Um, I think that the NBA has a real issue on its hands with this Dylan Brooks situation. If they don't come down pretty heavy, they're opening up a Pandora's box. As Steve Kerr said, there's a line. I agree with Steve Kerr that play well crossed it and i know that folks aren't supposed to litigate the result but well that's what we do in everyday life too and gary payton breaks his elbow hurts the warriors title chances moving forward hurts their chances in this series and if dylan brooks gets to play again in this series which i expect him to I don't like it, but I expect him to. Uh, it doesn't feel like there's much karmic balance in the universe with that. So uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of a, uh, anger. I'd prefer to be talking about sort of the X's and O's and all the interesting things happening with spacing and John Morant and Clay Thompson and Jordan Poole. But um, uh, the, the predominant emotion, it seems out there, the emotion that, that I carry too is uh, frustration, anger, and it's anything but basketball. And uh, when the playoffs have been so exceptional across the board, I mean, well, well beyond the Warriors series, uh, that's that's a damn shame. So I hope the NBA can do something to get this train back on track. The ball is in their court now, but um, sorry to say I don't have a terrible amount of trust in them to make that happen. Well, you, you mentioned that incident, and then obviously game one had the dream on injection. We've seen things have been a little bit heated, and I imagine that that season-ending injury will only add to the frustrations on both sides here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, not to pin the success or failures on the referees, but how should they approach the rest of the series? Because I imagine that it's going to be pretty contentious on both sides. Yeah, I'm very curious to see how that goes, because obviously the whistle has been a 
foundational part of this series to date, as you noted. And I can make the argument that the Warriors kind of want it both ways, right? When they're on offense, they're getting bashed around. Steph Curry and Jordan Poole have spent more time on the floor than they have at the free throw line. Okay, so that's that's a standard that the Warriors would not like to see maintained when they come to San Francisco. But defensively, they're so small, the Warriors are, that they need a little bit more room to bump. So they're just looking for that home court whistle that Memphis got. And if there's one thing that we know about the NBA playoffs, it's that in the first four games, you can guarantee a home court whistle. That's just how it goes. So the Warriors are hoping that it evens out the way that it usually does. I won't lie, though. I I don't expect this to get much chippier. I mean, I don't expect it to get any more physical. If the Warriors were going to start something, they would have done something last night. And there's a legitimate disappointment that the Warriors, and I guess maybe you could pass this off as class or experience or whatever, but like Gary Payton II got taken out. That was a hit and nothing happened. Warriors didn't do a thing. And I don't know what that says. Uh, I'm certainly not one for bloodlust. It doesn't look good on anybody, but... The fact that there wasn't even like a scrum, right, or, or some sort of coming together and bashing of the heads in that moment. The fact that it just didn't feel like, I don't feel like the Warriors really stood up for their guy in that moment. Maybe it was just the shock of the, the, the audacity to do what Dylan Brooks did. But I have to wonder if a, a dirty guy like Zaza Pachulia was around. David West, who was a very clean player, but certainly an enforcer. If somebody like that was around, even JaVale McGee would, you know, kind of stand up for his guys. If the Warriors roster was in a situation where they just had like a true big man who could stand up and, and tower over somebody, I wonder if that would have been different. And I, I wonder if that would have changed the, the tenor of the contest because the Grizzlies after that, what was their incentive to stop playing dirty? I didn't see one. I mean, Draymond got elbowed in the face mere moments later. The rest of the game, they were pushed and battered around. And the fact of the matter is that I don't think the Grizzlies, as currently constructed, and certainly with Desmond Bain's back injury, I don't think they can beat the Warriors straight up. So they have to drag them down. They got to bring them into the muck. And the first two games, there was no encumberment to mucking that game up. We'll see if that changes. I think it will change in games three or four. But the Warriors have to do a better job of of getting down in that buck. You know, they know what the series is about. They know what Memphis is trying to do. They're one, allowing them to do it with the help of the referees, no doubt. And two, I don't think that they're doing a very good job inside that environment. Very curious to see moving forward. But in terms of fireworks or anything like that, last night was the game for it. It didn't happen. I I do think the crowd will, will get their say, no doubt. But yeah, a little bit disappointing in that regard. You know, what's interesting, and I wanted to throw this by you a bit, because after Draymond got ejected in game one, Mm -hmm. and then it kind of carried over to game two, I started to think about how after Draymond's suspension in the 2016 finals, and it may or may not have cost them a championship, you know, we'll debate that for the rest of the time. This it is a felt man's like league. sort of, I mean, it just felt like the demeanor of the Warriors changed. And part of that, mm-hmm. I think we assumed was Kevin Durant joining the team and they didn't need mm-hmm. any of the stuff that they had before. Cause they weren't the chippy underdogs yeah. or the fun story in that way. I just kind of associated it as like the team demeanor kind of changed once it may or may not have cost them a championship, all the, the antics mm-hmm. that may have been going on around the team. And so now they kind of look at it as just be the bigger person. I, I think that there's a lot of credence to that. I do think that there's a lot of, I, I would actually agree with you hundred percent that they want to be the bigger man in that. And that, as I said, it's, it, you can chalk it up as, Oh, it's experienced. 
forgive me here, but fuck experience sometimes, man. Like sometimes you got to stand up for your dudes. Sometimes you got to go out there and put a chest in somebody. That was not a basketball game. That was mixed martial arts. Where was the Taekwondo from, from the Golden State Warriors? I mean, just, oh, we'll play through it. Zen doesn't get the job done in a situation like that. That, that. that is an alleyway brawl and there's a knife in the middle of the floor. Grab the knife. Grab the knife. And again, it, this is not a good look for me. I'm sure in months this will look ridiculous. There's bloodlust. I'm sure it's coming out of my eyes here. And it's a bad look, as I said, on anybody. But when you cross the line, who is going to regulate that? I mean, the referees kicked him out of the game. But did that really teach Memphis a lesson? I mean, legitimately, it, the only thing that regulated that game was the sheer gall of Dylan Brooks. I mean, you hear in the crowd when they show the instant replay of that of, of that action, you even hear the crowd go, ooh. <laughs> like, it wasn't to Gary Payton's elbow. It was because it's like, that's indefensible. Now, the Draymond situation in game one, let me be very clear, and, and I, I, I've said this a dozen times since it happened, that was a flagrant two. Uh, is it a borderline flagrant two? Absolutely. I think that if the Warriors were at home and that was Andrew Wiggins, it's a flagrant one and we all move on. But it's on the road and it's Draymond Green. Benefit of the doubt is lost in two different spots there. Uh, sorry, Draymond. He did two flagrant fouls on the same play. One, he grabbed Brandon Clark's jersey. I don't care what the intent is. He grabbed Brandon Clark's jersey. That's a flagrant one. There's no room for misinterpretation on that. The other thing is he punched Brandon Clark in the face. Like, I know, I know that, oh, he was just going for the ball. Well, he missed. I don't care what the intent is. That's a flagrant two. That's a flagrant two with two positive intents that came out poorly. Okay, fair enough. You can still get kicked out of a game for that. I don't care what your intent was. The issue with Brooks is that's a flagrant two where you cannot reasonably tell me that he didn't have intent to seriously hurt or injure, that that wasn't a Bush League patty ass play where Brooks barely jumped. If, if he was going for the ball, he's less coordinated than me. And that says something. You cannot tell me, oh, he didn't, he didn't mean to do that. What evidence is there? We're just taking his word for it. I, he doesn't, he doesn't have that kind of say. He doesn't have that kind of reputation as, oh, what a clean player. He's a rock chucker, has been since day one. And that's a, a great thing about him. He's a brilliant basketball player in the regular season, but he took it way too far, way too fast. So I can appreciate the Warriors wanting to be the bigger team, but how about this? How about they're the actual bigger? It would be something if they were the actual physically larger team in that situation. Situation where they can just lord over somebody and say, that's that now, young man. I mean, the Grizzlies are young and they're brash and they have gone way past the line of acceptable behavior. And the Golden State Warriors experienced and, you know, uh, uh, KG and all that stuff. And yet they're not the ones reining them in. That that tells me something. And I'm very curious to see how this plays out because I, I want to be very blunt about this. The Warriors are screwed. They're screwed. I think that they'll beat Memphis. But Memphis is going to keep taking pounds of flesh. They are going to keep pushing the limits. If the Warriors escape from this series, they will not be better for it. They will not just come out and have a spring in their step. Denver was, oh, it was a little tough, but, you know, let's go, let's go out there. We get a couple of days off. No, they will come out of this bruised, battered, and worse for wear. And if Phoenix continues to take care, and we'll see. I mean, I, I do have some faith in Luka Doncic here because he's a brilliant basketball player, but he's just one guy. You're counting on Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie and Maxi Kleba to, to do some serious work against the team that was unquestionably the best in the NBA this regular season. If the Suns just mosey on through, 
to the Western Conference Finals, and the Warriors limp in with no Gary Payton, who, by the way, vital against both Devin Booker and Chris Paul, the Warriors are screwed. I don't see how after last night the Warriors can still get back into that title contender status because they lost a key player, arguably their only good perimeter defender outside of Andrew Wiggins who is in and out, and he's done a really wonderful job this postseason, but I don't know if that's the guy you want to be riding with in crunch time minutes on the perimeter. One guy, by the way, foul trouble, NBA playoffs. Like, is that a good thing? You just lost your number one perimeter defender, a vital aspect of any championship team, and you're not showing the sort of size in both ego and physicality that will stop Memphis from continuing to do stuff like this. Not as egregious, of course. I, I would like to think that Memphis wouldn't try something like that again. But it, again, just the little thing where, you know, Steph is always on his ass. Poole is always on his ass. Draymond's getting elbowed in the face. All this stuff. And I know the Warriors are dishing it out a little bit too. Again, Draymond's flagrant one. I'm not saying that they're a clean team and that, you know, they have been besmirched and sullied by the Memphis Grizzlies. Whoever wins this series is winning a war of attrition. And the attrition... The Warriors cannot have any more attrition than they've already gotten. They can't beat the Phoenix Suns less than their current state. And their current state, I still would pick the Suns. So I think they're screwed after this. I think that this is one of those things where in the moment, obviously it's big because of the, the situation. Uh, but I think that this is one of those things that we'll look back and go, oh, man. yeah, of course they didn't because they didn't have Gary Payton and because Steph was banged up and because Clay got a knee knock and all this stuff. And we'll just have a bunch of excuses. And I don't know if it had to be like this way, but certainly it was predictable. Steve Kerr's coming out before game two. <laughs> it's like, this is this is going to be the most physical game ever. And of course it went beyond that, but yeah, just absolutely brutal. And a, a team that a team that had a little bit more depth, a team that was better built for this, would we be able to withstand it? The Golden State Warriors are, are straight up not that team. Theater, a lot of good stuff in there. And I want to thank you for adding Bush League back into my vocabulary. I haven't heard that term in a while, but <laughs> glad to add it back into my repertoire. Uh, but, you know, there are some things to take away that I think are yeah. bright spots. I mean, Clay and Steph oh, was 16 for 44. It took mm -hmm. a 47-point effort from John Morant. You guys still split the first two games in Memphis. There's a lot of good things to take away from there. They only beat you guys by five last night with all that, with yeah. a terrible shooting night from two Hall of Famers mm -hmm. and jaw absolutely going nuts, going ham. Yeah. With that said, what was the time in Memphis overall a net win, even with the injuries? No, because of the injury. Because of the injury. If they were to have split on less acrimonious circumstances, I think we could spin it that way. But no. No, it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just the basic no. It, it, there's something critically wrong with this Warriors team, or at least the matchup with Memphis. You know, Memphis has just given this team problems for very obvious reasons. They are just big and physical, and they want to pound you into submission. And they are really good at controlling the pace of the game. My God, what happens when John Morant actually figures out that if he slows down, he'll be a really good point guard? Right now, he's just going at 500 miles per hour. Doesn't know how he doesn't know where the brakes are, doesn't know how to go into second gear. It's just six gear all the time, and he's still dropping 47. If he ever figures out even a tenth, a hundredth of what Chris Paul can do in terms of you know controlling the pace of the game, operating, actually operating, it's game over because that Memphis team is physically built to be really impressive in the playoffs. They can't shoot worth a lick, but they will make sure that they get a lick in or two on you. And I just I just don't think the Warriors are better off because this always looked like it was going to be a six or seven. And 
there's a reason that Gary Payton II was starting. It was one, the fact that the Warriors didn't have a tremendous amount of depth, but two, it's, you know, Clay Thompson isn't the kind of defender he once was. You can't put him on Ja. You're dead. You put him on Ja, you're dead. And that's a huge issue. Clay has been, has shot what, 31%, 21% from beyond the arc over the last three games. Uh, at what point is that a, a larger con, you know, a larger commentary on Clay and not so much? Just, oh, well, he had a bad game in game two. I mean, there's issues there. They're not able to score at the rim at the rate that they would need to be able to score at the rim, the Warriors, because of Brandon Clark and even Xavier Tillman and certainly Jaron Jackson Jr. Memphis is built to beat Golden State. The reason that they are tied 1-1 is because Memphis has no idea what it's doing. <laughs> like that's that's the cut and dry. They have no idea how to play playoff basketball. The issue is they're figuring it out every day. They're getting a little bit smarter every day. Well, I, I say for game two, because heaven forbid, you know, we ever uh, align smartness with the Memphis Grizzlies for their game two performance. The Warriors are getting a little weaker every day. If Clay doesn't bounce back, if we don't see a Clay game soon, I'm talking in San Francisco next two games, there's a larger comment to be made. They, they can't win. They can't win unless Clay Thompson wants to be a 20 point per game score. Jordan Poole has been wonderful. You cannot expect Jordan Poole against this level of physicality to be dropping 30 every night. That's just not fair. Steph Curry is going to do incredible Steph Curry things. If he is even slightly off, the Warriors are cooked. Uh, you know, Defensively, Memphis is now figured out with Ja. And I don't know if it's necessarily that big of a problem because, again, they're such a bad shooting team. But they have figured out with Ja that he can get whatever he wants off the dribble, whatever he wants. They pushed more and more from game one where Ja was settling for those three-pointers to then more and more, oh, I'll just take this space's runway to go do what it is I need to do. And either, you know, a crazy circus shot going to the line or the drive and dish. And Memphis is a smart enough team to dish it a couple more times beyond that. And eventually rotations break down. Again, I do think the Warriors win this because I, again, they, they lost by five last night with an emotional letdown with Clay Thompson playing like crap with Steph Curry, not playing all that well. Like, I don't know, like outside of Andrew Wiggins, who didn't, you look at the box score and you wouldn't know, like outside of Andrew Wiggins, who played well? Like Looney, <laughs> like, and yet they only, and as you noted, Ja went for 47 and yet they only lost by five, but I don't think Memphis is going to shoot that poorly again. And I don't know if the Warriors are going to be able to ramp it up anymore uh, because again, Clay Thompson has been more hindrance than benefit for the last three games. And so long as that's the case, the Warriors are equal, maybe even a little bit worse than Memphis. And that's giving Jordan Poole the benefit of the doubt that he's going to play well every night, which we saw in the Denver series isn't necessarily something we can give him. Again, even if the Warriors win this one, you think about the, the, the toll that this series would take. And maybe this is just over-reverence for the Phoenix Suns, who, again, they, they had their struggles in the first round. It's not as if they're infallible. But Phoenix has the three things that you need to win. They have an operator, somebody who can control the pace of the game at the point guard position, somebody who understands situation, situational basketball and makes sure that his team's always in the right set to combat the you know defense that they're seeing, a uh, coach on the floor on the offensive side. The Warriors have that too in Draymond Green. And I would argue Stephen Curry to a degree and maybe even Jordan Poole if we get down the line a little bit more. But there's no one better at that than Chris Paul. Chris Paul can control a game entirely by scoring five points. The only other guy that you can say that about in the playoffs right now is Draymond Green. So you have an operator. You need a perimeter defender, the lockdown guy. I would venture to say that Mikhail Bridges qualifies. 
does Andrew Wiggins? Because with Andrew Wiggins and Gary Payton the second, I can amalgamate one of them. I can feel pretty good about my odds. We'll throw them at that one. We'll throw them at that guy. You know, you can mix and match. No Andre Guadala and Andre Guadala. That was never that dude anyway. Makes it a real issue. So now you're just relying on Wiggins. I've loved what I've seen from Wiggins this postseason. That is a tall order when you only get six fouls per game and you're going up against a point guard like John Morant. So you got that. So Phoenix is now up one, if not up two. And, you know, the third thing is somebody who can get to their spot on the floor and just knock down a bucket in the mid-range anytime they want. Just it, it doesn't matter what you do defensively unless you're putting two guys on them. They're getting points. And the Warriors don't have that dude. Curry and Poole get close. And maybe I'll give Poole more of the benefit of the doubt on that one. But Curry has also been really good in the mid-range. But both Paul and Booker do that for the Suns. Paul does it as well as anybody you've ever seen at that size. And Booker's a bucket. There's just no two ways about it. Okay. Yeah. And the Warriors' defense is their strength. How do you feel about the performance they've had so far in the series? It's been fine. I'm cautious to present this as like a knee-jerk thing. I don't think we were giving the proper amount of respect to Gary Payton II for his performance in game one, because clearly Memphis, with their adjustments, they did some really nice things. They also just knocked down a lot of big shots in both of those games. But clearly something shifted in game two with Morant. And if Payton was there, you at least have to have some skepticism not to say it wouldn't have happened, but there's some skepticism that it would have happened. So what I found really interesting in game one, and I want to give some credit to Steve Kerr on this, was that they played better when Draymond Green got kicked out of game one. And it wasn't just the wake-up call that they alluded to. Clearly, some of that is, hey, no Draymond, maybe we need to up our game a little bit. But they offensively were running the offense through Steph Curry and Jordan Poole. So it's a little bit more of kind of the the classic perimeter pick and roll offense. You know, a little less motion, a little less split action, a little less horns, a little bit more just high pick and roll. Five out, we're going to space you, and we're going to cook you on the perimeter. And defensively, it was more. It was just a straightforward defense. Five up, switch everything, guard like hell. And when Draymond's in there, it's beautiful if it goes right. Because Draymond's freelancing. He's that second guy who comes in. He's allowed to do whatever he wants. But I think Memphis is deft enough as a passing team. They are a really underrated passing team, as we've seen in these first two games. They're deft enough to exploit that. And I thought in game two, the Warriors did a nice job of staying honest on the defensive side more often than not. They didn't have to resort to janky zones or anything. Every playoff series is defined by who they let shoot for you. Draymond Green has clearly been one of those guys for, I don't know, every game he's ever played in the postseason. Uh, in this series, it's, I don't know, any Memphis Grizzly whatsoever. Uh, like, they're, you're going to have to leave something because the players are too good to not leave somebody. And I, I just thought that schematically, they were in a really good spot. I thought that they were in a, a really nice spot. I think those adjustments that Kerr made from game one to game two, the lessons that he learned from Draymond not being in, were correctly appropriated with Draymond in the game. It doesn't mean it was good, though. It doesn't mean that it worked. And I struggle personally. Luckily, I'm not paid to have to come up with this answer. But I struggle personally to see what Golden State can do to both slow down John Morant and limit Memphis from actually putting points on the board. It feels like they are in a series against James Harden where it's like, we can't really stop him. We can only hope to contain him. The issue is that James Harden, if he doesn't get his, or if he doesn't get his in the perfect environment, Houston doesn't get theirs. That team wasn't 
built to create it off the dribble to really do anything outside of what James Harden gave him. And, and that was even the case when Chris Paul was on the floor, and certainly the case when Russell Westbrook was on the floor. But even when Chris Paul was on the floor with them, it, it never it never worked. That secondary creator never showed up. Memphis might not have great creators, but they're a really sharp team. And I just I feel like they know exactly what to do when Ja goes into that hyper isolation sort of offense. They know how to run actions off of that. They actually have motion and plays and some semblance of good basketball off of the alpha in John Morant, who is playing like an alpha right now. And the Warriors can double team him. And I think they'll get burned that way. The Warriors can let him get whatever he wants. And I think they'll get burned that way. Again, he does not know what he's doing yet. And he's so athletic and is able to make such crazy shots. And if he's able to shoot a lick and he has the first two games, it's a real, real problem for Golden State. And it might come down to, can they simply outscore? And that is a dangerous proposition for the Golden State Warriors, especially if the game is going to be slow and you're going to do a lot of half-court offense stuff because the one guy who really thrive or really needs to come through in those half-court offensive sets is Clay Thompson. And to this point, he has not. And by the way, as I said, they're doing a lot of offense to defense trading and they're going to have to do even more of that now. If Damian Lee has to play 10 minutes a game, I, I don't I don't really know how that how that jives with winning. <laughs> so it's been fine. They have a worthy adversary. And my goodness, thank goodness they have a very highly paid coaching staff because they have their work cut out for them from this point on. Think about the amount of adjustments this team has made in just a couple of days, right? Think about the adjustments they've made over the last four games they've played with lineups and rotations. It's pretty wild stuff. So very, very curious. It's obviously exciting uh, from a, a hoop head perspective to just see what happens next. Again, I think the Warriors win this, but my confidence was low going in, and it might be even a little bit lower right now. I, I, we're coming up on coin flip territory, folks. So fascinated to see how it all plays out. Oh, hey, man. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Great insight, as always, Dieter. Uh, go ahead and drop the social media handles where we can find yeah. all your great stuff. Uh, it's at the San Jose Mercury News and the East Bay Times. You can catch me on KMBR most nights when the Warriors aren't playing. Right now, it's a little bit tricky with my other job and trying to get all that figured out. Um, but I'll be doing Giants post game and stuff tonight, so it should be a pretty good time. Uh, and you can get me on Twitter at Dieter, D-I-E-T-E-R. And now, and now, the meme expert, Kyle. Let's make them laugh. This is Memes of the Week. I have hijacked the podcast here at the very end to deliver some hurt to Juju's beloved Texas Longhorns because the amazing statistic came out that the Texas Longhorns had zero players drafted in the 2022 NFL draft. And Juju will probably come on here and bemoan the fact that a kicker ended up getting signed to a practice squad. And that is correct. Dicker the kicker is indeed on a practice squad. Congratulations. You're, you're cheering on the kicker as holding up the, the beacon of stability for the Texas Longhorn program. But just in, in what kind of company are the Texas Longhorns finding themselves in here? Well, there were nine college football teams in the Power Five that did not have a player get drafted in this year's draft. Texas, with an athletic budget of close to $200 million, joins the illustrious club of Vanderbilt, Northwestern, Colorado, Arizona, who, by the way, Arizona lost to Northern Arizona this past season in a game where, uh, also a season where Arizona's only victory was beating Cal, who lost 22 players due to COVID. That was their only victory on the season. TCU, West Virginia, Syracuse, 
and Louisville are the illustrious company Texas finds themselves in. Who are some of the teams who happen to have players drafted in the 2022 NFL draft over the Texas Longhorns? I'm glad you asked. This would include the illustrious company of Air Force, Miami of Ohio, Missouri State University, coached by Bobby Petrino in Division II, Fordham University, Yale, Northwest Missouri State, Oakita Baptist University, <laughs> Fayetteville State, Valdosta State, three different Dakotas, North Dakota State, South Dakota State, and the University of North Dakota all had one draft pick this past year. Montana State, who had two draft picks this year, shout out to Montana State, putting two players into the NFL. The University of Rutgers, UConn, who was also 1-11 this past season. And for the exclamation mark punchline of this joke, the University of Kansas, the same University of Kansas program that defeated the Texas Longhorns midseason last year to break a 13-year road conference losing streak against Texas. And Kansas put one player in the draft, which is one more player than the, I will remind you again, larger than Alabama athletic budget of the Texas Longhorns gotta say i'm not feeling very all right all right all right after hearing that but hey dicker the kicker am i right let's talk about that just woo, cameron dick back up for matt gay on the los, los angeles, angeles rams. rams super bowl champions baby yeah no this is sad um yeah if sark doesn't win seven games this year if he doesn't at least live up to his nickname of seven win sark bye happy trails i don't care i don't care what the buyout is just get out of here you have to beat kansas by 50 if you don't beat kansas by 50 this year that might be a fireball offense too that might that just might be that just might be a thing that needs to happen because just for my own sanity it was a bad hire when it happened and if it if it doesn't result in anything good especially with all these high level recruits if we don't see players drafted in the nfl next year i mean we'll, we'll have b john robinson drafted okay cool but overall it just tells you kind of the fall off and i guess maybe it's more of a tom herman kind of issue than anything but still nonetheless very sobering statistics to hear about i guess that's one thing that my alma mater and my current fanhood have in common that neither can send players to the NFL, whether that's NMSU or the University of Texas. But thank you, Kyle, for giving us perspective. And I think perspective, even in a fun, even in a joking way, even a memes of the weekend type way, is good for us all. Have a laugh at my expense. Hook them still. Stay safe, happy, and healthy. From Juju Talk Sports and Kyle Ledbetter, we'll see you on the next one.